Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. I love Christmas. I love the Christmas season. I wear the hat and the beard as an opportunity to share the gospel of Christ and encourage people to remember the causes of Christmas. I, I hope you enjoy the Christmas season as much as I do. Hopefully not as much as that maniac Will Ferrell and the elf. Uh, but I have to confess, I, I thoroughly enjoy decorating. I actually am the person who loves fruitcake. And I'm sorry for some of you, but I actually enjoy Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You. Even if it's sung multiple times. Over and over and over again. But what makes you happy? What makes you happy during the season? What makes you happy in life? Is it a good meal, paid off bills, a new car, promotion and raise, a thoughtful and loving spouse? In the movie Hook, Peter Pan has grown into Peter Banning and explains to Tinkerbell that he grew up because he wanted to be a father. As Peter confronts Hook and fights the pirates, Peter explains to his son, you won't believe this, but I found my happy thought. Took me three days to find it. Guess what happened when I did? You know what my happy thought was? It was you. It was you, Jack. It was you. And recalling Jack's birth is the strong happy thought that restored Peter's power to fly, bringing him back as Peter Pan. Happy thoughts. If you remember, as we studied Jonah, we saw how God in his kindness gave the king and all the people in the kingdom of Nineveh the gift of repentance. They donned sackcloth and ashes, and the righteous judge of all the earth was not unmoved. In Jonah 3.10, we read this. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring upon them, so he did not do it. Today, we're going to look at God's response to repentance, which is his extreme happiness. Well, what is God's response to repentance. First, a definition. Repentance is a turning from sin to embrace Christ as God's all-satisfying manifestation and solution. It's God's aggressive initiative in Jesus that starts our amazing journey. Since God is highly exalted, even though we try to understand him, we tend to conjure up weak and idolatrous images of who he is. We must finally confess that he is inscrutable, totally beyond our comprehension. Some of us are limited by our vain imaginings and we don't quite conceive of God as being happy, joyous, and delighted. One of the things that is true about God and that is that we don't often talk about his joy. We get caught up in the fact that Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. As the prophet Isaiah said, we never in the New Testament hear of Jesus laughing, although... In Luke 20, 10, verse 21, 
we hear of Jesus rejoicing about how God reveals things to people. Aside from that, we all tend to sort of land on the stern, hard side of God and the grieved side of Jesus. But that God possesses joy is obvious. Joy is part of our lives. We know joy. We experience pleasure, delight, joy, laughter, happiness. Where did it come from? Well, it had to come from from the creator, the source as a communicable attributes. In Romans 14, verse 7, the apostle Paul says that the kingdom of God is joy in the spirit. So that is to say that joy is a component of the kingdom of God as dispensed by the Holy Spirit to those who are in the kingdom. In Romans 15, verse 13, we read a benediction when Paul writes, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. God wouldn't fill us and couldn't fill us with joy unless he had some to give. God, who is the source of joy, has joy himself to share. You remember in Psalm 51, David comes out of his terrible sin and asks God to restore him the joy of God's salvation. God rejoices. God experiences joy. The scriptures help us out of our limited thinking by describing his response to repentance. Today, we're going to consider a passage out of Luke 15, and I encourage you, open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 15. And I'm going to start reading in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. In verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin which I have lost. In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Christ himself describes how God searches, finds, secures, and not only rejoices, but calls others to rejoice with him. Notice that joy is over a lost sheep that is found, or a coin that is found. But our Lord goes from the lesser to the greater, and he drives the message home. Look at verse 20, there in Luke 15. In that same chapter, we read the account, of the response of the repentant prodigal son. Luke 15, 20. So he set out and came to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him, 
felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, slaughter it, and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. The father saw he was looking for his son. He felt compassion, not anger, not resentment. He ran. I'm 65 years old. I don't run anymore. This father ran because he saw the son that had been lost. He clothed him as Christ clothes us with his righteousness as a garment. He put a ring on him. Not only a ring that represented familial ties, but also a ring that focused on the riches that were his being part of the family. Put sandals on his feet. Sandals which later in the apostles' writing would be used to illustrate the gospel. Well, God Almighty in Christ seeks and finds his lost sheep. That the Old Testament prophecy of Ezekiel 34 is being fulfilled in him. Ezekiel 34.15 said, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek that which, I, which was lost. And Ezekiel 34.23 through 24, he says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Our Lord Jesus, when he was here, was continually in pursuit of lost souls. He was seeking lost men and women. And it was for this reason that he went down among them, even among those who were most evidently lost, that he might find them. He took pains to be in their presence, to be in their company, and have communication with them. And he exhibited such kindness toward them that in crowds they drew near to be near him and hear him. Christ Jesus is the promised Messiah that we celebrate this month, that even the world celebrates this month. And this is an amazing opportunity for us to communicate that grace. When he receives repentant sinners, they're part of God's flock. They're part of the family. And they have fellowship with the triune God. In joyous reunion. Well, God seeks us through Christ, our good shepherd, and rejoices over us when we flee to him, coming to him. If you turn back to Luke 14, and verses 16 through 24, Christ has confronted the coldness of heart concerning those who would not receive him as their savior king. He sent out to the highways and byways and compelled strangers from all different backgrounds to come to his feast. Notice in Luke 14 how Jesus placed no restrictions on those he invited. He doesn't care about their financial status, their political affiliations. Luke 14, 21. Let's, let's read there. Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here those who are poor, those with disabilities, those who are blind, and those who are limping. 
And later the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and the hedges, hedges and press upon them to come in, so that my house will be filled. There are no artificial limits on the invite. Previous faults, financial status, class distinctions, different personalities, whether or not somebody is passive or assertive, who voted for whom in the last election, they're not part of that amazing, generous, and gracious process. He clothes those coming with righteous wedding garments and welcomes them to the feast of their lives. Those seated around the table there in Luke 14 are self-righteous and angry. This man receives sinners and eats with them. How does our Lord respond to their narrow-minded, myopic tantrum? Well, in his responses in Luke 14 and 15, Jesus describes the opposite, welcoming, hospitable, and loving response like a shepherd seeking and finding a lost sheep. A woman searching diligently until she finds that one silver coin. A father looking to the horizon, searching for an errant child's return, and when he sees him running, embracing and joyfully celebrating the prodigal, Jesus says that the joyful celebration of the shepherd, the woman, and the father is a picture of the joyful celebration of heaven over one of these repentant sinners who is right in front of him in the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees of the Sabbath, on the Sabbath to eat bread and who also dare him to heal a man on the Sabbath. In spite of his majesty, his holiness, universal power and greatness, God astonishingly cares for individual human beings one at a time. In that passage, in Luke and beyond, you'll find that God is pictured as pursuing the loss with purpose and serious, all-absorbing intention. It's an active, personal, and persistent search. He will keep at it until the lost one is found. Not only is it driven by tender love for the sheep, but notice that Jesus describes himself as successful in the endeavor, and he does not lose any that the Father has given him. There is one sheep out of a hundred. There is one coin out of ten. There is one family member. God has a universe to uphold, galaxies to keep in place, atomic particles to manage, and governments to rule in his providence. And yet, <laughs> there's nothing in the scriptures that say that God rejoices over orbits of stars or rise of kings. It's true that God takes pleasure in all that he does. But Jesus is clearly referring to something special in these parables. When one sinner repents, there is a special joy in heaven. God cares for individuals one at a time. So what makes God rejoice? The answer is, when the lost are found. When the lost are found. That's the joy of heaven. The joy of God, the joy of angels, the joy of the redeemed in glory, and it should also be our joy. God has always delighted in the recovery of sinner. God delights in that recovery. He shares that delight with all the holy angels and the redeemed and the glorified saints. And part of eternal rejoicing, eternal rejoicing, 
is going to be this endless chorus of hallelujahs because we have been redeemed. God finds his joy in our recovery. Jesus rejoiced in the salvation of the lost because as God, he possessed that divine joy that belongs to the creator and redeemer and comes in recovery of the fallen, broken, and ruined soul. This has always been the case. Consider in the Old Testament, passage in Deuteronomy 30, verse 9, for the Lord will again rejoice over you for good, just as he rejoiced over your fathers. This is during the time of the patriarchs. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. We're not talking about external religion. We're not talking about superficiality. We're talking about a reinstitution of a of ceremony. We're not talking about a reinstitution of ceremony within a tabernacle. We're talking about a transformation and salvation. What brings the Lord joy? It is the salvation of sinners. Consider another portion of God's word confirming the joy of heaven and its inhabitants in Jeremiah 32, 37. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. This is God's purpose for all of the redeemed throughout redemptive history. Not only for their good and for their joy, but for his as well. God says, I will rejoice over them with all my heart and soul. What makes God rejoice? The salvation of the lost, the recovery of sinners, the rescue of those who are perishing. Even in Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 14, we read this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will be rested in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Consider the wonderful teaching of Jesus in Matthew 25 to the faithful servants when he said, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. What does he say then? He says, enter into the joy of your master. Come, enter into the joy of your Lord. Can you imagine being in heaven and having God shouting for joy over the fact that you're there? Can you imagine right now, because you're in his kingdom, he is shouting for joy and the holy angels are shouting with him and the church triumphant around his throne is joining in the cry? A party is happening in heaven as we speak and it continues to escalate every time a soul is saved. The great message today is this. Heaven rejoices greatly. Heaven celebrates when a sinner is saved, when a lost soul is found and recovered and restored. And the reason that God rejoices so much over the winning of the lost is because he delights most in the worship of the whole family. One of the great surprises that I had when Kim and I became empty nesters was how excited I was when the holidays came, Christmas was coming, and everybody was coming home. I see some of the older saints nodding their head and saying, yeah, that's special. If we content ourselves with our limited worship experience without wanting to include the lost sheep who don't yet have this joy, 
we do not mirror the heart of our risen Savior and King. Well, with that in mind, let's consider what is our response to God's gracious and compelling gift of repentance. In way of application, as we study the joy of God, let's look at two truths. First, what is my response to God's search and rescue of my soul? We just read a portion in Psalm 70 and verse 4 that talks about God's delight. In our hearts, I pray that the light of worship is rising and growing stronger in thankfulness. Do we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd illustrating how all of heaven responds to the work he has wrought in your heart? Christ is the love of God seeking and finding what belongs to God. Jesus is the heart of God. This prophet and so much more of the Nazareth, uh, so much more of Nazareth is the arm of God reaching out. The Prince of Peace is the crook of the shepherd's arm, the shepherd's staff, really, in the wilderness. His are the shoulders of God where the sheep gets carried home. If you look in the scriptures, you'll see that the government rests upon his shoulders, singular. But that lost sheep is picked up and carried upon both shoulders. How secure are his people? You, if you are his, you're a member of an eternal family. You are lifted up, hoisted by his strong arms, and securely carried on both shoulders. The light of the world is the lamp that searches in a woman's house. He sweeps and cleans the house in search of you and me. When you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, he's present, receives sinner, and dines with us as the beginning of the great wedding feast that we read about in Revelation. God is happy when his children come home. God receives us. He has joy at his table. We have seen the Father in his joyous, happy Son reunited with his own, of whom he has lost none. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, we read that it was for his joy, for his joy, capturing you and I for your and my ultimate satisfying delight. He endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated in rightful place of exalted authority. For the joy set before him. He did this for you. If you're his child, if you are his, he endured the cross. He despised the shame because of the joy of welcoming you back home. You and all of his people. Well, second, we have to ask this question as well. What is my response? What is your response to God's searching and rescue of others who are lost? We're called as a church in a world that celebrates diversity and pluralism, but demonstrates a heart devoid of tolerance to receive sinners and eat with them. We find our joy in this world in lots of different ways. But if you want to get in touch with God, and share the joy of heaven, 
you and I need to find our greatest joy in the salvation of the sinner, in the recovery of the lost. We have to ask ourselves, am I closer to the attitude of Jesus and therefore to God, or am I closer to the attitude of the Pharisee and the scribes in the very opposite direction of God? That's really the question. The Pharisees and the scribes, who were the leaders of Israel, found no joy in even approaching the lost, let alone seeing them converted. In the context of Luke 14 and 15, the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a wine-bibber and hanging around with prostitutes and tax collectors. And of course, he did hang around with those people. He wasn't a drunk. A drunk. He was not gluttonous, as they said. But he did spend his time with the very people that they would not spend their time with. Those who were self-righteous had a whole theology of how this worked kind of a social theology. The Pharisees and the scribes were the Habarim. They were the elite, the religious elite, where the tax collectors and sinners were in that general character category known as the Amhararetz. Amhararetz were people of the land, the earthy people, the lowly, the outcasts and the base. And the attitude of the Pharisees was that they were so pure and so holy and so righteous, they couldn't get near those people for fear that somehow those people would pollute them. Wow. Hmm. Anybody who is ignorant of the law, anybody who is ignorant of the traditions, Anybody who is indifferent to the law and tradition wouldn't go through the rules and tithe. and Obey the rituals. They were unclean. And a Pharisee wouldn't go through those or near those people. Pharisees spent their time with only Pharisees. And they had an old rabbinic rule. Listen to this. This is the rule. Let not a man associate with the wicked not even to bring him nearer to the law. Let me, let me repeat that sad refrain. Let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him nearer to the law. Well, that's helpful. You're a teacher of the law, and you can't associate with the wicked to bring them to the law? They were so worried about pollution that they didn't even take the law of God to the people who needed to hear it. Now, this really found its focal point at a meal table like you see read about, that described in Luke 14. If you're going to separate yourself from these lowly people, these Amharats, if you're part of the Habarim, the pure people, the holy people, you wanted to stay away from the lowlifes, you would never be found eating with them. The Pharisees were very careful about what they did, what they ate, how it was cooked, and especially about with whom they ate. You remember the Old Testament restriction about eating a goat or boiling a goat in its, uh, a calf in its mother's milk? Well, the Pharisees carried this so far that if they were in a place where they were dining and they saw one person enjoying some cheese and another person in a different part of the room enjoying some meat, they would have to separate themselves and leave because somehow in their mind, the person eating the cheese and the person eating the meat 
would somehow be mingled in their mind and they would be violating that Old Testament restriction as a way of getting, getting away from these low lives. That's what they were thinking. The rabbinic law said you cannot even mix milk and meat in your mind. You couldn't touch the clothes of one of the low lives. You couldn't sell anything to anyone. You couldn't be a guest in their home. You couldn't have one for a guest. They were never together. The self-righteous were very unhappy and protest and complain as Jesus unmasked them as being very different from the God who rejoices over the one who repents. A sheep, a coin, a son. One sheep out of a hundred. One coin out of ten. One son from a family. Maybe that's why the stories flow that way. We don't know. The sheep is dumb, defenseless, and helpless, but the sheep is the property of the good shepherd who brought this precious one with his own blood. He's not heartless, but has compassion for his lost sheep. The wandering of a soul causes Jesus deep sorrow. He cannot bear the thought that one of his own should be in jeopardy. He cannot take any rest as long as his soul, for whom, as this soul, for whom he shed his blood, still abides under the great dominion of Satan and under the power of sin. Therefore the great shepherd neither sleeps nor slumbers. He must save his flock and he's constrained until it is accomplished. The coin is senseless, inanimate. The son is rebellious and wicked. And they all illustrate the condition of the lost. The father is always the seeker and he finds the one whom he seeks. And heaven always celebrates. This is the joy of God in heaven. This is the joy of God in salvation, the joy of God in recovering lost. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as a matter of taste and pleasure, would never have been found among the publicans and sinners, nor any of our guilty race, if he had consulted his own ease and comfort, if he only consorted with the pure and the holy angels and the great Father. But he was not thinking of himself. His heart was set upon the lost ones. His heart was set upon you. His heart was set on you. Even on the cross, his thoughts were on those people he would call to himself. The Son of Man came to seek and save what? That which was lost, right? In the process of recovery, may God draw us closer to his heart so that we find our joy where he finds his joy in recovery of sinners. Well, we've spoken this morning about God's joy. The joy in heaven over those who were lost and those who have been searched for and rescued. We've talked also about the joy and relief and happiness of those who were the objects of his compassion, the objects of his love. Not only do those who receive this indescribable gift of joy enter into his joy, but they multiply that happiness by extending his sovereign love to others. But there's a third party that we need to address. And we'd be remiss if we did not talk about this. There may be some here today, and there may be some who may hear this recording, who take temporary pleasures in the crumbs that this world has to offer. 
you're not satisfied. Like Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, you can't get no satisfaction. And this world was not designed to satisfy you. You have listened to the music. You may have heard the prayers. You may have heard my poor, feeble, and stammering lips. But your heart is not warmed by the Savior who left the glory of heaven and who is seeking the lost. You may have never experienced his great joy, the joy of his salvation. You may love your sin. And you may be here because a friend invited you, because this is what your family does, that this is the Christmas tradition, it's the Christmas season. But you will miss out not only of that great feast to which you are all invited, to which we are all invited, you will also miss out on being right with the God against whom, outside of His grace, you and I are in rebellion. It's your love of sin. It's your love of your rebellion that so easily makes even the simple pleasures fade away to discontent. Friend, if that's you today, I would ask you, I would plead with you, I would urge you to renounce your love of sin and to flee to the one who does, doesn't just look after sheep, doesn't just look after coins, but who seeks you and who calls you to renounce your love of sin, your love of this world, and to see the gracious, glorious gift of forgiveness by trusting in Him, believing in His sufficient sacrifice, and to enter into the joy that He and only He offers. Because that's what this Christmas season brings us. The joy of salvation, the joy of our Savior, and the joy of being right with God. Father, we do indeed thank You and praise You for that joy that you have brought into this world through your Son and the joy to which you invite us. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you rejoice over finding us. And, oh Lord, we pray that every heart that is here would indeed confess you as the righteous ruler and king of their hearts. And, Lord, that we would be able to reflect and share that joy with others. We praise you for this time. Cause us this day to reflect you more accurately, to love you more dearly, and to enjoy and enter into your joy. We praise you in the name of the one who is our peace. Amen. Amen.